0: He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please be seated. Find your way to page 1030 in your pew Bible, or if you've got your own Bible, find your way to Revelation chapter 4. That'll be the fastest thing to do. And then rewind one verse to Revelation 3, verse 22, right before chapter 4, which I just said a moment ago, I quoted it. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit of God says to the gathering of his people, the church, is not the first time this has been said in the New Testament. Jesus says it in the Gospels. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's a strange kind of riddle, and it's really meant for you to realize you hear him. He who has an ear, let him hear. Is that me? Well, I don't know. Is it me? Did he say something? Do I believe it? I think I do. Well, then I hear. But what about those who don't hear? And this is kind of the key in why the church in Laodicea is going to be so important to us as we think about what it means to be the church running toward the tomb of Jesus Christ as a people on a journey walking toward, again, his empty tomb. Because his empty tomb is our empty tomb. Running on this journey, looking at these various churches to be people who hear the Spirit of God when he speaks means to be people who are aware there's a lot of people who don't hear the Spirit of God speaking at all. They don't want to. They won't listen to it. They hate it when he speaks. They hate God. They say, I love God, but in their heart, they make up a dream about him and they don't love the true God. So when Jesus comes along again and says this and that, this and that, let the one who has ears hear. What he's calling you to do is just like take it to heart. Like you specifically, you personally take it to heart. Now this phrase then, what he who has ears hear, what the spirit says is the church is right there. Chapter three, verse 22. It's also chapter three, verse 13. It's also chapter three, verse six keep going back, chapter 2, verse 29, all through these seven letters at the front of the book of Revelation, you have him saying to each of these seven congregations the same thing. If you're a Christian, pay attention. That's what it means. If you're a Christian, pay attention. And by that, realize there's people that aren't paying attention, and they're on the path to not being Christians. It's the path they're walking. Now, Let's put this back in a little context from our series here, too, though. So we've, we've journeyed with individuals, Peter and Paul. And now John, we're going to get a little bit here today as well. We've journeyed with congregations. Why? Because I think that we are at a precipice, St. Paul. I think we're at a gate. We're at, we're at a time when where we go can go one way or the other. And we're really already very much going one way. But what I want us to do is no longer just kind of be going that way because it's good. It is. But I want us to be like, we're going that way. This is the way we're, hey, do you want to come to my church? We're going that way. And that way that we're going is to be like the church in Antioch where they're known as Christians because they follow the way of Jesus Christ, the words he says. So, of course, they're Christians. They believe what he says. They quote him all the time. And then we want to go the way of the church of Berea. Where the way we know how to say what God thinks is that we test the scriptures regularly. We study them regularly. And so we want to be a church that we're noble-minded. That's what it calls the Bereans. They're noble-minded because they search the scriptures. And now we want to be a congregation that comes to any letter from Jesus written to the church. And we hear it (laughs) when it's written. We say, Amen, do it even if that letter ultimately is a condemnation. So that's where the church letter to Laodicea that we're going to look at, it's it's a condemning letter. There's a moment of option to repent. And you have to believe there's Christians in the congregation that do repent, but to my understanding, the history of the church in Laodicea is it didn't really go well for them as a group. They kind of do get, as it says, spit out of God's mouth at one point. I believe Christianity has returned to the area. It's not like it was gone forever. Um, But... The point here then is, as Christians today in a congregation that's not the church in Laodicea, we're not this congregation. And we're not going to have the problems they have. We're going to hear about them being called to account. And what we want to do is say, yes, call me to account. Wherever this does describe me, Jesus, take it away. Fix it. Make it clean. Let me be the one who hears what you said. All right, which at the end of this particular letter is going to be mean saying, you know, let me not be lukewarm. Let me not be lukewarm in my faith. Let me be hot. Maybe let me be cold. I don't know. You pick your metaphor. Jesus doesn't seem to care. He just doesn't want you lukewarm. All right, so, so to get there to us as a congregation, not lukewarm but hot with the word of God, uh, I want to also then give us some bigger picture for the book of Revelation because, I mean, when I said we were going to Revelation today did you get that little flutter in your heart like ooh ooh Revelation that's a fun book yeah um, everyone likes it cuz of all the big scary pictures in it and and they are they're they're big scary pictures uh, sometime you know when you're when you're not heading out too fast after church make your way back to that library space ooh fire trick. um make your way back to that library space and find yourself volume 3 of the Kingstone Bible it's the New Testament. It's a comic book Bible. Just open to the back and flip through the book of Revelation. And you're going to be like, that's in the Bible? Because the pictures are just insane. They're just insane. The monsters, these beasts and things, the dragon, all this stuff. It's crazy, this book. It's absolutely off, out of this world, this book. And that's what people like about it. It's, it's, it's exciting. And it's kind of like a conspiracy theory, Right? Because like, if you understand it right, don't you know what's going to happen next in history? Don't you know how the world's going to end? And this is a myth we've got to really deal with here. Because the primary thing most people think the book of Revelation is, is a map for telling the future about the end of the world. So you can point to things in the world and say, I know what's going on because it's just like it says in the book of Revelation. Now, the problem with that is it turns into a lot of people trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist, which the Antichrist is not mentioned in the book of Revelation, as a side note. But more than that, so let's let's say I just do this right here, right? So we're all Lutherans, right? We confess the book of Concord of 1580, right? You guys know about that. The Augsburg Confession, small card articles of Dr. Martin Luther, where he says the Pope's the Antichrist. Oh, power and primacy of the Pope, true, the treatise. Our confessions say the Pope's the Antichrist. Now, the challenge with that statement is everything you think about the word Antichrist is what Hollywood thinks Antichrist means, and all of it's wrong. Like, almost every single bit of it's wrong. Like, the, like this end times incarnation of the devil's son or something? Like, what's that? That's made up. It's completely made up. Yeah? So also, the apocalypse The apocalypse is not the end of the world. The word apocalypse does not mean end of the world. The the word apocalypse means to lift the veil. Right? So i got my face covered. Apocalypse. Not apocalypse. Apocalypse. Okay? Like, it's it's not that crazy of a word. It doesn't mean end of the world. It means you can see what was hidden. So St. John's apocalypse is St. John's revelation. Right? What's a revelation? It's I see what I didn't see before. I see what was hidden. So St. John's Apocalypse is absolutely the revealing of the hidden power of God behind history. I'm not going to say it's not that. But those who say it's only about the future or only about right now in this little tiny way to get us to the future, that we're going to follow this roadmap, they're missing how it's actually all about right now all the time. So if I can back off and give you my thesis, the book of Revelation is about right now not because it's almost the end of the world, but because it's always almost the end of the world. And so every church that has heard or read the book of Revelation has been able to look at their world and be like, it's just like that. It's just like that. There's a reason for that. It's because it is just like that. But that doesn't mean we're at the actual end of the world now. right? There could be many, many generations to come of Christians who say, oh, look, the beast out of the sea. It's just like that. Yeah? And... and We could spend weeks going through, like, who's the beast out of the sea, right? All that stuff. We're not going to do all that today. But what I want to dismiss is the myth that this is about the future. It's about right now. So what John's going to tell us first off is that, you know, right now for him was around 92 AD. He's on a rock in the middle of the sea. (laughs) It's a little bigger than a rock, but it's kind of a rock. It it is not, uh, you know, you think, I'm going to go to Greece and I'm going to go to the islands. Yeah, Patmos it wouldn't have been on your stops unless you're going for the chapel they you know they've built there now. Um, but this would have been where uh, you have a terrorist who you need to like get rid of for a while. So you put him on a boat and you go up to the shore and you let them off the boat with three soldiers and you go away. And there's no boats. And you drop off a box of food every month or something, right? And you're just stuck on a desert island. You're just there, and you know the soldiers. What am I going to do? He had a Bible, it would seem because he spent some time in the spirit on the Lord's day. Maybe the Bible is just in his head and he's quoting the Psalms. I'm not sure. That's kind of where I want our story to pick up here a little bit is this moment in the desert island where the vision happens. So go back a couple pages to chapter one, uh, verse nine. Uh, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. I love that threefold description of what it means to be a Christian. It means You're in tribulation, (laughs) the world's falling apart. It means you're in the kingdom, Jesus reigns, and it means patient endurance. Like the faith that you have mostly is about waiting. Like what do Christians do mostly? We wait. And then we do good where we can while we wait, right? So he's our brother in this, in Jesus, it says. He says, I was on the island of called Patmos on account of the word of God. So and he's in prison, effectively, for being a Christian and testifying the testimony of Jesus. Then, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Now, what does that mean? Now, the, the most Pentecostal charismatic person would imagine that he's going gobbly gobbly bobbly boobly, and he's rolling around on the ground and screaming and doing stuff by himself. Right, why? Maybe, right? Um, probably not, actually, at all. But, but I, I kind of get why they want that to be that way. They want to believe that John was listening to Jesus. I think he was listening to Jesus. I just think that the easiest way to do that is to read a psalm out loud in Jesus' name. And we've seen this through the book of Acts, that the Psalter is all over the use of the early Christian church. So when John says, I was in the spirit on Sunday, right? um, I'm going to assume he's singing. (laughs) Uh, He's singing and he's singing something that's written based upon or in the word of God. And when this happens, when he goes to the word of God, Jesus shows up. Now, take that for your own pocket right there. I don't expect for you to go open your Bible this afternoon and hear Jesus talk from behind you so you turn around and see him. I don't think that's going to happen. But I guarantee you, if you go and you pray, let's let's just pick one for this afternoon. What do you should try? Go try Psalm 43. It's pretty short. Psalm 43 this afternoon. Go do it. Jesus' voice is going to break into your life the moment you read it. Now, you might be like, where? Where? Well, I mean, pay attention to the words. <laughs> right? That's Where? You read them out loud and listen and realize you didn't do that. Like your voice did it, but the Holy Spirit of God, who is Jesus' spirit, did that. Right? Be in the spirit on this Lord's day. That's what we're doing here. John hears a voice outside of that, from behind him, right? And then he turns to see that voice. First, he hears it, though, and it says, write what you see in a book. That's verse 11. Send it to the seven churches, and it lists them. We could do all sorts of cool lore on these churches if, you got the time, you can go searching on the internet. I did an old series called Rev Fisk Raw, and I do one hour on each of these churches with the, the Greek history of the myths and the wars that led up to why they are there and all this stuff. Um, it's, it's tough to find, though. I don't even know where it is. But there, there's a lot. There's a lot we could do. We're not going to. We're going to jump to, he hears God say, right then verse 12, we heard the reading a moment ago. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me And I'm turning, I saw seven lampstands. So he looks to see who talked. I'm on a desert island. Who talked? He turns around and the whole thing changes, (sighs) right? You know, you think the the coolest uh, contemporary screen cut you can imagine. It all shifts and blurs with a buzz in a moment. And the first thing he notices, I mean, he's in a temple. That's where he shows up is he's in the temple of highest heaven. Okay? So imagine the most beautiful cathedral you've ever been in and then make it out of stars and emeralds instead of stone. Okay, he's, he's in a place like that. And the first thing he sees in that place is this circle of seven pillars of fire just kind of burning around this guy, dressed a bit like me, standing there in the middle of it all. all right? uh, You heard that red and he fell down dead from that, but there's more that he sees before he falls down dead that we didn't hear red. So let's keep going with a little more of the image here. Uh, Verse 13, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, I just said that, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. I said, kind of like the one I'm wearing. Uh, This chasuble that I'm wearing was $20 on eBay. It was made in China. I believe it's made by a company called Bless You Me or something like that. Um, it is, this is not gold, okay? The point is, this is not gold. This is a very cheap fabric. What he sees on Jesus would have been golden thread like a king would have worn. The kings did this all the time. They'd weave gold into stuff. And we can buy gold paint and, like, paint this image on our wall in gold. It costs probably Thousand bucks, something like that, right? Like, so you can do a lot of things with gold. That's part of why it's valuable. And so Jesus has it again wrapped around him as a sign of his divinity, as a sign of his authority. He owns everything, right? Um, uh, and then he's got white hair. The hairs of his head are white, like white wool, like snow. This ain't no speckled, you know? Uh, uh, this is a full on piercing, bright white. Which generally would mean the man is quite what? Old. Is Jesus old? Oh yeah, he's, he's the ancient of days. He's old. He's super old, right? And is Jesus worried about the kids thinking he has gray hair? You know, it's it's a funny thing about America. I mean, please don't don't go home and be like, I gotta stop dyeing my hair. A pastor said so. Like that is not what I'm gonna say right now. Okay, I like dyed hair is fun. I've thought about dyeing mine with streaked blue. I just don't know what to do to the rest of you. So, I, you know, I don't do it. Um, but, but there's something weird about our country where the sign that you have survived and succeeded enough to still be here, we're all embarrassed of it. And we all want to be like the idiots who walk around going, I know everything. And then they bang their heads on stuff. We want to be like them. We got it so upside down, the way we worship youth culture. And if you'll believe me, the Bible's very clear, gray hair, I'm quoting, direct quote, gray hair is a crown to be worn with honor. So when I see my speckles, I, I kind of go, thank you. you know, I'm glad Jesus has seen fit to give me a little bit of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can know that without, you know, really believing too highly in yourself. See it as it's a gift from God. And now then apply that to Christ now. So Christ shows up and he says, who am I? I know more than everybody. That's who I am. I've been around longer than everybody. That's who I am. And I'm not embarrassed a bit about it. The hairs of his head white like snow. And then just in case you were worried about him being too old and decrepit, when he looks at you, his eyes are pillars of fire that glare. (laughs) They shoot fire at you and and burn. And then when he speaks, it isn't just a voice, and it isn't you know like a microphone. Uh, it's so loud that it's like rushing waters. I, I asked in the last service how many people have been to Niagara Falls. So let's see if we've got to, got to, just a couple here again. Remember how loud it was. Like you're standing beside each other and you have to shout to talk. Um, if you've ever been to like the Pacific coast and, and been with the waves when they're four to six feet and crashing, it's like that too, right? The sound of many waters is loud, like nothing else can be heard. And so, again, John's like, I'm singing Psalm 43 on an island beach. Wish I had some better food. Hey, wake up. He turns around, pillars of fire. Glowing fire eyes, golden sash. I mean, everything's just burning around him, right? And then and we're going to just kind of skip to um, verse 17. When he sees this, there's more there, the seven stars and whatnot. When he sees this, I fell at his feet as though dead. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he did. <laughs> can you can you picture it? Like next time you're making coffee. I just imagine what happens if you turn around and you see this image. And, oh, down you go. <laughs> and he's on the ground because it's just too terrifying to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Get that deep in your heart. It's too terrifying to see the glory of Jesus Christ until Jesus says, fear not. And that's what he says. That's right. I am something to fear, but fear not because what I'm yours and you're mine, that kind of thing. Fear not. I am the first and the last a claim to be God, basically. And it'll come back in the book of Revelation at the end. Uh, I am the living one, meaning like life is what I am. Not I'm alive, but I am life. And I proved it. We know this is just classic gospel stuff, right? I died and behold, I am alive. He is risen. Hallelujah. I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys. To death and Hades. you remember back to like that confirmation preparation, the part that really didn't make any sense? The office of the keys. <laughs> Why what the keys? Does the pastor have keys? I got any keys, but I do. I walk around with the office of the keys. I carry the keys to death and Hades. What are those keys? I forgive you. Okay, that's the key that lets you out. Right? And repent. Repent. You're not repenting. That's the key that that binds you. Yeah. And that leads to something called excommunication. I know you've heard of that before if it ever gets there. Um, but what I want you to see is the point of the keys is the good news. Like Jesus is like, oh, I didn't just beat death. I got the key. It's right here. <laughs> you want some? Yeah, take and eat. And that is really where it goes, right? That for you, Christian, the key to death and Hades is the body of Jesus Christ that goes into your mouth, into your stomach, to feed your heart, your mind, your soul, and all that you are, your nephesh. So that again, you are you're going to be raised up on the last day, and this isn't something that maybe will happen. This is your future. You may you may be confident in. Huh? Um, all right, so uh, fear not. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, we kind of skipped that, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the seven churches, excuse me, the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so now with this seven, John, Jesus is introducing the first of four volumes that make up the book of Revelation. So we just had a little section that's like the introduction, right? Chapter one, hey, there's Jesus on the beach. He's scary, but he loves you, okay? Um, And then you have you know, chapter two is really a volume of seven chapters. And then chapter three is going to be a volume of seven chapters. And then chapter four is gonna be a volume of seven chapters. And then you have an end. Yeah. And of these sevens, I'll go from the back before the end, you have a seven bowls of, of incense, you know, burning, smelling fire that actually gets poured out on the planet as types of wrath that God sends down on the earth. And you have seven trumpets of God blown by angels, uh, which also turn into a, a revealing picture of the war between angels and demons behind history and kind of looking at it from one angle. Uh, and then before that one, you have seven seals, not like, uh, 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 right? But, but like on a letter that you would open, right? And to open the letter, you got to break the seal. There are seven seals on a book. This book is God's word to mankind, and no one can open the book except Jesus who opens each of these seals to give us his word, which again shows us the battle for our souls taking place behind history and all of these marvelous images of beasts and dragons and all this stuff that, that we're not going to talk about today, but the book gets into. All of that happens in the last three sevens. But before that, you have this first seven, the seven churches and there's seven letters. And then you know he lists them there. And, and he also says that they are these lampstands that you saw. And they are these stars that you saw. So again, can I try to repaint the picture? Glorious heavenly tabernacle with, with like rainbows and star fire everywhere. But these seven burning fires around a guy dressed in white with gold and fiery eyes and burnished feet. And he speaks with the voice of many waters. And he holds in his hand seven stars. I, I don't even know how to picture that. Like, I don't think they look like the little stickers you put on the paper for kindergarten, right? Like, these are like burning balls of fire that are small and in his hand. He's got all of them. And then he says here in verse 20, those seven burning balls of fire in my hand, those are the angels of the seven churches. And these burning pillars of fire, these are the seven churches. Well, that's that's interesting on so many levels, okay? Like, first off, Let's just rewind to those who want to always say, I take the Bible literally, and that's why I don't believe the Lord's Supper is really Jesus' body and blood, but I do believe that there are Apache helicopters in the book of Revelation because I take the Bible literally. People say that, okay? I I hope you see how convoluted the way I just gave it was. I I straw-manned it a little bit. But um, for those who take the Bible literally, the idea that these seven stars are angels, and these seven lamps are churches, is like Jesus saying, at least in this verse, I'm not speaking literally. Right? Like these seven lampstands are churches. Well, then they're not lampstands, are they? Or they're a kind of lampstand that's unseen, and the church is the real thing. Right? The whole book of Revelation is going to work this way. He just introduced symbolism to you as a concept in the book. Huh? So anyone who again says, I take the book literally, it's like, well, you don't read it literally then. as it says it's not literal. Now, what are these angels? And we're going to get to this again in a moment. You're going to see he's going to write the letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. You got two options. I mean, either every congregation has like a single angel who's in charge, and we don't see him or talk to him, but Jesus does, but this time sent a letter through John to the people so the angel could hear it. And then this angel is told. I'm about done with you by God. Which would make this angel, like, not perfect, right? (laughs) Like, not what we think of when we think of angels God sends as His ministering fires, right? So all the way along, we're getting further and further from this being an angel the way we normally think of that word. The other option is that you just use the normal meaning of the word angel, which is messenger, to the messenger at the church in Laodicea. And then, well, who's that? It's the preacher who would receive this letter, and then read it to the congregation, like kind of like we're doing right now. And then talk about it. Here's a letter. We got one copy. I'm reading it. I'm the messenger. Yeah. Um, so that's the seven pastors, the seven preachers of these seven churches, and then the seven flames. Those are you. That's us, right? That's the that's the congregation uh, around the pastor. Now, one more piece. Okay. You have this map in front of you. Can you find this near you? It's in the pew. Right? It's a picture of what you would call Asia Minor, or uh, today we call it Turkey. It's three provinces of the Roman Empire that I believe there's about five or six uh, that make up modern Turkey. So there's a number that aren't on the picture, but you see Mysia, and you see Lydia, and you see uh, Car- Caria. And these are all on the far western coast of Turkey. Uh, you know, Mysia and Pergamum, this will be like where Troy was. Right uh, and where the, the odyssey kind of goes over here as a story. You have there seven cities marked out. These are the seven cities that get the letter to the book of Revelation, Ephesus, Smyrna, uh, Philadelphia. Notice how five of them are in the kingdom of Lydia. Five are in the kingdom of Lydia. One, um, Laodicea is outside of, of any of those provinces, and then Pergamum is in Mysia. What that kind of shows you is what tradition holds, too, Ephesus is kind of the mother church. So in this, can you think of this as like a city, like a modern city, what you see on the page, that much space. It, it's not a modern city. It's, it's several provinces, but um, Ephesus is sort of home base for all the churches. And then they spiderweb out from there further east, south, and north. And at a certain point, they're not quite as connected to each other because of geography. So to get into the region of Galatia, you got to go through some mountains. Right? And so they're not quite in the same parish structure. So my best explanation for for why these seven churches are the ones that are written with this letter and like Corinth is not included. And um, uh, Colossa, which is right there next to Laodicea, it's not included. There's a church in Colossa. Why aren't they included? Well, these seven congregations, first off, are the ones that John was closely tied to himself. That's like your traditional answer. But then the other one is that, well, these are the ones that stand in for everybody else. There's more than seven churches but I've been with you long enough for you to know seven ain't no random number, is it? Seven's a holy number. It's a special number. It always means more than it is. I mean, when when Elijah is told 7,000 have not bowed the knee in Israel, do you think it's literally 7,000? I mean, I guess it could be. I think it's more than 7,000. Seven holy, 10 perfect, cubed God, right? 10 times 10 times 10, God's perfect, holy people are there. Don't worry about it, Elijah. Go home. Be fine seven churches is all the churches in the entire world summarized in these seven congregations who then get seven specific letters dealing with their very unique needs the same way other New Testament letters do and in that then uh, we're going to see or you do see if you read through chapter 2 and 3 a real diversity of things like to this one congregation he's like I know it's hard just hang in there this other congregation he's like I hate you but not as much as them And then to this congregation, he really is like, I'm done with you. So as Christians now, we want to look at all seven of these letters as a total package of God's Spirit's word to the church in every time and place about what we are to believe, teach, and confess. Does that mean that in every time and place, you're going to be one of these churches? No, I don't think so. And there are also people who try to make it like about the life cycle of a congregation or things like that. I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. But I do believe every single one of these letters says something to anybody who reads it at any time, because it will always connect to what's going on around us. And you're going to see this with Laodicea very, very clearly, I hope. I hope as we get there. Okay? So... We're skipping over the first six letters. We're just going to go right to the last one. Next week, we'll go back and look at Philadelphia, the one right before the last one. Uh, but here we're going to look at uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 and following, uh, where it says, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Each of these seven letters follows a pattern, like it's like a form letter, and so there are things it does, you know, in each letter. And one of the first things it does is Jesus just gets titles, kind of like an ancient king, right? Um, in fact, if you ever if you want to read our confessions, I mentioned them already. You know, pick up the Augsburg Confession sometime. We used to have copies out on the table. We still have them somewhere around here, maybe by the bookstore. And you'll open it and you'll find the first thing it does, it says, oh, most illustrious emperor, Charles V. And then it gives like 15 titles, you know, all supreme defender of Christendom, right? And he and it just lists one after another, after another. And if you saw uh, the new king of England being crowned uh, Charles recently, again, he was given all these names, all these titles, right? So Jesus has more he's king of kings and lord of lords. Uh, And you get a bunch of them in every one of these letters. The ones here are the Amen, the faithful and true, the beginning. Uh, Those are are three titles of who Jesus is. Amen is the Hebrew word for yes, or true, or faithful. And it's Amen or Amet, depending on how the ending of the word works. So he says, I'm the yes, I'm the true. Right, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He talks this way, right? Um, and he says, you know, the faithful and true. He's tying three words together there that are all similar. But now this beginning of God's creation idea. Was well, Jesus a created creature? No. <laughs> no, he's not. Uh, but did he take on the flesh of creation in mankind? Yeah. He did. And then when he did that, he died, and he rose again, and he's the first one ever to actually really do that, which makes him the firstborn of the next creation. He is not a created being, but in the next creation, he's the firstborn of it anyway. (laughs) And then guess what? You are going to eat him later. So guess what that makes you? Now, the firstborn of the new creation. Not one, but many. Right? The body of Christ, the church alive in the world. It's powerful. Powerful stuff, this religion of ours. Start thinking about it. So the beginning, Jesus. Uh, Verse 15. Now, he gets into the actual substance of the letter, and this one's going to be reproof all the way through it. I know your works. It's bad news. You're neither hot nor cold. Now, that's interesting. It could be, I know your works, and you do a lot of bad things. It It doesn't even say that. It's worse than that. I know your works. You don't even care. That's what he says to them. You don't. Even care. Now, you want to hear a message for the modern church? <laughs> We're running around with our heads cut off, trying to do everything, trying to do anything, trying to make it work. St. Paul is not alone and struggled over the last 25 years. Many, many congregations have asked, Why are we here? What are we doing? How do we get more people to come? We're dying. We're scared. But in that, the zeal to discover the Bible itself? I mean, have you noticed? Are you watching? Are you listening? Is that what they t- say, come to these other churches and do? Come read the Bible? No, it's not. And, and what is killing all the churches again? Well, most people go to the church like it's a club where every week you got to show up and prove that you kind of mean well, right? I mean well. All the people think I mean well. God thinks I mean well. And, Now I go back, I do whatever I want. Because frankly, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. I'm a free person, right? I love Jesus, but you know, he wouldn't say that, even though the Bible says it. And we end up with a whole lot of that all over the churches. And what happens is there's a lot of people who go to church like that. Like, I I don't really believe the Bible, but I think it's good to go to church and love God and and stuff like that. Okay, but your kids are done. He's got to know that their kids are gone. The kids are watching MTV. Uh, that's the old version of TikTok. The, the kids are addicted to TikTok um, and, and running with their heads cut off all over the world. Why again? Because they don't care. They don't care. L- let, me, let me throw another one at you here, if, if you don't mind. You know, be, bear with me. i preaching to the choir here a little bit, so don't hear this as me attacking you, okay? Um, but I have more than once in my life heard it quoted, Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And this is usually said to me by a mother whose child no longer goes to church. The child's an adult and no longer goes to church. And they say, but I took him to Sunday school. So I know that when he's old, he's going to come back. Now, far be it for me to know the heart and mind of every person who said this to me and all the history and what happens later. Jesus can bring people back. But I know that Train up a child in the way he should go doesn't mean one hour a week. You want to train a child to do anything? It's every day. Is why sports takes so much time. Because you're training up the child in the way they should go and they get good at it and they don't want to depart from it, if you notice. All right, so how do we now, us, repent for the whole world in this? So that here at St. Paul, what we want is we want to be a people who train up ourselves in the way we should go without any any reservations at all. That when Jesus says, "I know your work," he knows. Oh, then you know I'm reading the Bible, begging you to open it for me. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not. I'm not just kind of gonna, you know, look at it and then go and forget. Go back to what's more important this week. I don't know. There was so much fun in the news. Title Forty Two, or is it Bears football? I I don't know. What's the most important thing? And then. That's just it. That's the question. What's the most important thing? Would that you were either cold or hot, right? Jesus just wants you to, to care, pick a side. So, because you are lukewarm, either cold nor hot, cold hold nor hot, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, this is talking not to a person, this is talking to a congregation. Remember those seven lampstands, right? There's a, there's a burning fire here. Think of it this way, right? Here at the middle of this church where we gather, there's a burning fire we cannot see. It is the burning fire of the pillar of God putting a church here. It means the Holy Spirit and his word are active here. And that burning fire, if we all ignore it and worship other stuff, like the ceiling and the lights and the carpet and whatever else we want to worship, we worship it, eventually God comes and he takes that fire away and we just stuck worshiping the stuff. That's the threat. I'll spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to take away the church. You won't even know it's gone. I don't know if any of you have taken me up on this yet, and you know, let me know. I don't want to hear, hey, hey, Fisk. You know your, <laughs> you know your members are visiting Heartland? You know, uh, I, I don't know that I really want you to visit Heartland, but I kind of do. I kind of want you to find out, like it, is f- some other church in the area, find their midweek service, and just go take some notes and listen. Maybe you'll be encouraged. Maybe you'll be able to say, "Hey, pastor, there's a pro-life church over here. We should like talk to them." Or maybe you'll come back and say, "Pastor, I get it." Oh my goodness, we got to keep doing what we're doing. We got to tell people about what we got because so many churches they don't open the Bible, or you know, I open a verse and then I shut it and I talk about me for a while, right? As opposed to, oh, oh, Jesus, the burning fire in the middle. We don't want that spit out. And I don't say this to you today, St. Paul, because I think it's going to be spit out, right? But I want us to be a church who believes it's possible. It's possible for God to just close the church while we're all still here. And this happens then when what? Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. It's worse when you think you're fine. If you think you're not in trouble, that's when you're in trouble. You don't realize you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, Laodicea was a wealthy city. It was connected to Hierapolis, another wealthy city. And uh, I threw my notes to the side here. Here they are. Um, it was wealthy for several reasons. They had tremendous natural hot and cold springs. So the idea of hot and cold, you know, uh, you can see what Jesus is doing here a little bit. And natural hot and cold springs. I know you got a bathtub and a shower, so it doesn't mean much to you to have hot springs. But if we didn't have indoor plumbing, hot springs were the bomb, man. You traveled to go to hot springs. <laughs> uh, so they have hot and cold springs there. Um, they also have a very strong banking industry. So gold, lots and lots of gold. They are rich people in Laodicea. It doesn't mean every Christian was rich, but they are rich people. They say, I am rich. I need nothing, right? That, that's part of what's going on. Uh, there's also a very powerful trade for a salve, a, an ointment that's made there that's put on the eyes. And I don't know the history of whether it works or not, but I do know that everyone thought it did. And that Laodicea was the only place you could grow this plant where they would get this salve. And so it was known for salving the eyes which is gonna come back here in a moment in what Jesus says. But so they're basically like, oh, we're fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. He's like, you don't even know how, how naked you are. I counsel, he says, verse 18, so buy from me gold refined by fire. I think that's one of the most tintillating little sections there because first off, if I have nothing, how am I gonna buy gold from you? <laughs> right? And then why? what's the refined by fire? What gold that you would get as a coin from the bank at Laodicea wouldn't have been refined by fire? All gold, if you get gold, it's pure, is refined by fire. So, what's he getting at? And, and what he's getting at is that buy from me, not gold, is what he's getting at, right? So, forgive me for saying the Bible means the opposite of what it says here. But his point is what you think is gold, what you think so valuable, like that's concrete where we're going. <laughs> it's concrete. Uh, So I counsel you to buy from me the gold of hope and truth, right? The knowledge of that, uh, the surpassing wisdom of seeing that you're in Christ now and nothing can take you away from him. Buy that gold, right? So that you may be rich in faith. And then he says, buy white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. I skipped that along with the salve and the banking industry, uh, the wool trade. Textiles, garments was also a big part of Laodicean economy, right? So, do you see how he's saying all the stuff you think is your strength, you don't even have it. No. By salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. They got like they got rooms filled with salve. What does he mean by salve? He's saying all the stuff you see, you trust, not trustworthy. And the fact that you think it's trustworthy it's why you're apathetic about the things that are needful. No. Then, verse nineteen. And this is where I, please, you got to love this verse. Those whom I love, he says, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. As I've raised my children, I have seen how my desire to reprove and discipline them because I love them often results in them thinking I don't love them. Right? Stop it. Why am I always bad? You think I'm bad, right? We end up in that place well, I don't know how to become a better father. I keep asking Jesus for that one. Um, But what I know is that for my part as a son now, right? That when my father in heaven disciplines me, it is my task and duty to tell myself that the flesh that says he hates me or I did something wrong or why did this happen, that that's all a lie. And what I am to believe is that since he loves me, that's why it hurts more right now. Since he loves me. If he didn't love me, he'd let me go. He'd let me do whatever I want. He would stop hemming me in with the discipline of structure. And again, a great image for discipline is you're growing a tree. It's on a, a hill. There's wind. The wind's blowing. That tree's going to grow sideways unless you put some discipline in place. So you put a nice stick of metal and you tie the tree to the metal. And now the tree's going to grow with the discipline. So that's what parents want to do. That's what God does. Always. That's his attitude to you. And you're like, why are you striking me? He's like, I'm actually pruning you <laughs> and cleaning you up and putting better soil in the ground. Right. So uh, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Do we have time? Not really. We'll do it anyway. I- I've been really pondering um, the commandments, uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, um, and then the commandment that's like it, you shall not covet your neighbor's uh, wife, manservant, maidservant, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. And I've been thinking about the word covet because you know I would not know what coveting was if the commandment had not said you shall not covet. And so much of our life as Americans is built upon coveting. Like, you know, I open a magazine and I see a picture and I want my house to look like that. It's coveting right? And it doesn't really feel good. Usually it kind of weighs you down over time. Um, So the commandment to not covet is actually the commandment to be happy, (laughs) to be content, um, which we fail as bad as just about anything else. But okay. With all that said, that word covet has another meaning in Hebrew um, too, really. Uh, It means to be zealous. It's the same word. Or even to be jealous. God's a jealous God. God's a zealous God. God covets you. So coveting isn't the problem, just as zeal isn't the problem. The problem is having zeal, wanting something that's not yours. So you're you're supposed to not have zeal for your neighbor's house. You're supposed to not have zeal for your neighbor's wife or his donkey. Um, But you are supposed to have zeal for your house. Not coveting in the sense of, I want my house. No, but you're supposed to be zealous for your house, to take care of it. Be proud of it, right? And then take that and put it here now, right? Have zeal for this house. Have zeal for this sanctuary, this this holy space. Have zeal for this people who make this house what it is. The house is not holy because of it. It's holy because of us. We're holy because of the food, because of the word, right? Have zeal for that. Turn to that. Behold, he says, we're about done. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to eat with him and he with me. It's clearly in the singular. You can apply that to your own life every single day. Knock on the door of heaven. Dear Jesus, good morning. I need your help today. Teach me how to pray. Uh, But remember, this is to a congregation that's about to lose its status as a Christian congregation in God's sight. And he's saying, even then, even then, open your Bible, believe the words, I will come in. I will send my spirit among you. The holy God will be in your midst and he will be a people alive forevermore, right? I will come in with you. The one who conquers, he says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. churches. More than conquerors is what uh, Paul calls you in Romans. More than conquerors. You're not gonna walk out of here with a sword or a gun or a martial art. And make all of your neighbors do the right thing because of how Batman you are. But you are going to walk out of here, and nothing, nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And knowing that while it's happening is more than conquering it. In the name